1: Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guests on Off the Shelf are Tim Cook. Tim is the Executive Director of the Center for Procurement Advocacy. And Tom Sisty, who serves as the General Counsel, Executive Vice President for the Coalition for Government Procurement. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to
0: the show. Morning, Roger. How are you? Good morning, Roger. Thank you for having us.
1: Yeah, well, this should be fun. Um, we're going to do kind of a current events show. And I think, uh, Tim, we're going to start with all the goings on on the Hill right now with the infrastructure bill, you know, reconciliation, all those moving parts. Can you sort of just lay out for the listeners where things are and you know what we can expect through
0: the process absolutely thank you roger so uh, roger mentioned that the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed the senate um, before they departed on recess and it is now being sent to the house and it's a very important uh, infrastructure bill covering roads and bridges and many other things um my members and CPA are very interested in infrastructure in regards to cybersecurity grants and cybersecurity response and research on cybersecurity for the future. So I continue to uh, work on talking about digital transformation and the importance of those provisions in the bill. So simultaneously, well, simultaneously or soon thereafter the Senate passed its budget instructions and that was about a 96 page document that talked about how the Senate feels about what should be in the FY 22 budget resolution. And so those are also sent to the house.
1: So Tim, is that like what people refer to as the reconciliation bill, like that 3.5
0: trillion? Exactly. So that the, the uh, budget instructions kick off the process. And now the next stage of the process is next week, the House will return to D.C., and they will also pass their budget instructions. And that will unlock the opportunity for the House to begin working on their budget resolution. So the current plan right now is that then the House will recess and will wait until the Senate completes its budget reconciliation bill which could take several months but again I'm just talking about what the current plan is that I understand that the Senate would go first and then they would pass their reconciliation then those the reconciliation plus the bipartisan infrastructure bill would be taken up by the House together and that they would be passed together and the majority of the news and discussion on the Hill right now is how will the Senate I'm, excuse me, how will the house address those bills? will they be combined? will they be separated? Will the house be able to make changes to the bipartisan infrastructure bill? And what exactly will be included in the budget reconciliation? So let me just take a deep breath there Roger and and ask if you have any questions on that.
1: Well I do have to, uh, Tom you have yeah, a I guess
0: one question I had so uh, Tim cutting through all of this, um,
2: it seems obvious we're going to have a CR and at at some point, how long
0: a CR do we think a month, two months, three months? What are we thinking? Awesome, Tom. I really appreciate that you brought that up. So as Tom mentioned, um, the new fiscal year starts on the 1st of October. And because the appropriations bills, some of them have been passed by the House and some have been passed by the Senate, but not all of them it portends that we will have a continuing resolution and probably, um, they like to do it in, um, smaller chunks, but just if you look at the calendar and the folks that I've talked to, I think that they will be working on a CR that will go till the 18th of November. And then it may have to be extended into December, depending upon how much work they can get done on the appropriations bill. So the CR allows the government to function at a percentage of, uh, FY22 funds so that uh, the government doesn't shut down, excuse me, in FY21 funds. So it doesn't shut down in FY22. So sure. one quick question on that for everybody is, will that CR include uh, increase in the debt ceiling or will that be done by some other, you uh, know, some other vehicle? And then as things come up, for instance, the emergency in Afghanistan and other provisions that are tied to the pandemic, will those have to be extended in the CR2? And you get into a very, a little bit of a difficult situation because the House might have to include the extension of the debt ceiling and, and other issues and items, and they only have 11 legislative days left until the 1st of October to actually pass the CR. Tim, um, we, you know, we
2: saw in recent weeks uh, communication from uh, some members that they um, are going to uh, really allow this to, and to work out on a party line vote with respect to the debt ceiling. Do you see that
0: influencing the CR? Uh, Tom, thank you. That's uh, probably one of the most important in- Uh, questions in Washington, and I wish I had the answer. Um, I do not. Uh, Leader McConnell said that he does not want the debt ceiling addressed in the CR, and he felt that the debt ceiling should be addressed in the reconciliation. But based on the timeline and the feedback that that he got from uh, Senator Schumer, I I don't believe that it can be addressed well negotiations are still outstanding. So that's probably not a good answer to your question, Tom, but that's all we have at this moment.
1: Tim, so I have a question. Just how is it going kind to of play out in the in the House where you had the nine Democratic representatives write a letter to Pelosi saying, hey, you know, we want infrastructure back, passed first. Then you have the progressive uh, wing of the, the House, um, you know, wanting it tied together and wanting the the reconciliation done three point five, and then you've got the Republicans. And I think, if I understand correctly, McCarthy just came out against the infrastructure package. If I heard that correctly, so how how is this? How are they going to thread the needle to get all that if it's if it's at all possible?
0: Roger, they they will definitely have to have uh, high level meetings. And I know leading uh, meetings of the staff are going are ongoing as we speak. Um, although there there has been some a significant um, move to work on Afghan policy and everything that's going on there. So, but I believe the progressives basically feel that they want to have a vote on the infrastructure bill as soon as possible, because they feel like it's wrapped up and it should move forward. But the way Speaker Pelosi has discussed it um, and the way they want to play out infrastructure linked to reconciliation they don't want to divide that. And so it's a very difficult dance, but I know that many people up in the Hill very much want the infrastructure bill to pass. And they also want to see the reconciliation. Some feel like the reconciliation should be smaller and more focused, but it currently is what it is. And I guess you're going to also see, you know, many changes in the context of all the committees, both in the Senate and the house have to write the language for this reconciliation. And so what was put down just on the budget instructions will be different than what we see in the reconciliation. And so we will just have to bide our time to um, get uh, information from staff and from different reports on it to see how it is being crafted and then connect with the staff and the senators and congressmen to make sure that they understand our concerns or possible input to make things better for public policy and procurement and acquisition in general
1: yeah so we're up on the break um tim when we come back maybe we can talk about some of the you mentioned them uh, earlier in the segment some of the specifics in there that people are going to care about from a government modernization perspective and then talk about about that a bit and then we can also turn to some of the other things going on like buy american act and the proposed rule that's out there and what all that means. And Tom can chime in on that. So we'll take a break right now. I'm Roger Waldron. and My guest today on Off the Shelf are Tim Cook. He's the Executive Director of the Center for Procurement Advocacy. And Tom Sisty, the General Counsel, Executive Vice President, Coalition for Government Procurement. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Tim Cook. He's Executive Director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy. Tom Sisti, who is the General Counsel Executive Vice President of the Coalition for Government Procurement. And uh, gentlemen, first segment, we talked a lot about the process around the infrastructure bill, reconciliation, budget instructions, and just the tax, continuing resolution, all the process things. Let's just talk a little bit, you know, just take a a quick examination of some of the, the things that, that you see in the infrastructure bill, how it relates to government procurement or not um, and what are things that people might want to watch moving forward just generally from a legislative perspective, whether it's the infrastructure bill, reconciliation, budget instructions, all those kind of th- what what Congress is working on
0: that will impact you know government operations. Tim? Well, thanks, Roger. So uh, we mentioned in the previous segment that the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed the Senate, and, and now it's on to the House. Uh, the interesting thing to realize about this is well, once a bill is passed to the other chamber, that other chamber has to decide whether it's going to take it as it's written or if they, if they want to make changes. And from my understanding, talking to the House staff and the leadership is that the House definitely does want to make changes to the infrastructure bill. There was a very large bill passed several months back with energy and commerce and transportation and infrastructure, which mainly addressed infrastructure issues like transportation and water and other very important things. And it'll be interesting to see what changes the House makes to the Senate bill as it makes its way through the House and before they have a final vote. Again, uh, we discussed in the last segment how that final vote. they're currently thinking that they want to link the budget reconciliation with the final vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but it's too early to tell if they'll be connected or if they'll somehow have some other strategy for passing both of the bills so that they can go to the president for signature.
1: So I was just going to ask you, so, when you think about changes what what are you kind of hearing that people are going to add more money or change
0: focus on the
1: infrastructure bill
0: what what are you sort of hearing i think the the main issues that they were dealing with were the allocation of transportation funds and and whether it was going to go to roads or whether it was going to go to public transportation and how that percentage was going to be completed and there's a huge history in transportation bills Throughout the last decades, as to how that money is allocated. And it's done a little bit differently in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and it might be changed by the House um, based on their feedback through the TNI and ENC bills that they passed several months back. So, the focus of my members in CPA really in infrastructure is on cybersecurity grants, cybersecurity response, uh, cybersecurity research, and also. Digital transformation and modernization of of government systems because as we all saw, we probably had two years of changes in two months once the pandemic hit and everybody went to virtual and so the future will will be uh, focused on that and how we can make it better. Uh, digital transformation and modernization.
1: Tom, you have any thoughts? Yeah,
2: I know we're kind of bumping around <laughs> between CR and and infrastructure bills, but you know I was. Uh, Along these lines, thinking about the extension of uh, Section thirty six ten from the uh, pandemic bills early on, uh, trying to make that trying to make that permanent, so that we um, we're not going back to the hill as an industry and seeking to um, to get authorization to handle contingency uh, uh, and continuity of operations of government. If you recall. Uh, 3610 was put in place to allow uh, uh, continuity of government should there be uh, uh, pandemic lockouts, things like that, so that you had your your services workforce in ready state, uh, able to jump when the government needs them to jump. Um, The instead of these, this authority expired or expires periodically, and rather than have it expire, just have it. Invocable, if you will. I mean, where do you see that going, Tim?
0: Thanks for that question, Tom. I think 3610, section 3610 from the CARES Act has been a very important provision, helping service providers, making sure that they can continue their contracts and retain their important cleared or high level staff when um, they're locked out because of either a problem with the operation Uh, site or because of the pandemic or weather, other things like that. And so we have been um, talking to the staff about a possible extension from the end of September through the duration of the CR. And uh, I guess it's too early to tell. Uh, We've also talked to the Armed Services Committee staff about the possible enduring authority to have 3610 ready in case there's another pandemic or some type of cyber breach that requires people to be locked out of um, their buildings and they can't get the work done so that they can be retained. So as soon as they can get back in, the, the work will continue. So we're working on, that's a something that we're talking to the staff about right now for the CR.
1: So Tim, just also, when well, you mentioned pandemic, you know, what's the thinking on the Hill as, a, as you know, here we are, in the still going through it, right. You know, in the Delta Delta variant, but are there are conversations and efforts thinking about what we need to do as a government, you know, organizationally funding wise to prepare, you know, for the next time.
0: Absolutely. Roger. It's a, it's a huge concern. I mean, three of the senators tested positive for COVID. That means that they probably have to be quarantined for, I guess it's about 10 days. And so there's a big concern that a spread of the delta variant within the staff everybody's in very close quarters up there could be very catastrophic and detrimental because the staff really is working very hard uh not only on the pending legislation like we talked about infrastructure and the budget resolution but also trying to help out in uh with the afghanistan situation and so it's too early to tell you know i know they're talking about booster shots for those who were initially Got the shots early and I think it's going to be playing out as to how they're the architect of the Capitol has been very forward looking and trying to make sure that they're keeping the spaces clean and trying to uh, reduce the number of staff in the different offices to pre- prevent spread
1: right so and um, along those lines like so so what happens from a process perspective if like the three senators Aren't there for votes or whatever? What does that mean? From you know, from I guess, does it depend on like how many of each party are gone or what's the
0: deal? That's a great question, Roger. Well, so the House is allowed to vote remotely, and so they give um, their proxy to another Congressperson who then votes for them, and and that's worked out well. But the Senate's not like that, and so it could have a huge detriment to voting if a large number of senators get the Delta variant. So. Hopefully that will not come to pass. And when they come back on the 16th of September, everybody will be healthy and they'll be able to start working on the CR. As we discussed, maybe that will start in the Senate and move to the house. I'm I'm not exactly sure how they've decided which who's to start. It typically starts in the house, but we'll see. But the CR is the number one priority because like I said, there's only 11 legislative days in FY 22. Once they come back in September.
1: Yeah. Along those lines, I think we have got about a minute left. And in the long term, you know, beyond just the current sort of tactical operations and addressing the pandemic, what's the thinking on the Hill about what the federal government needs to do to be prepared for the next one?
0: Absolutely. Well, I think the different agencies are having what we would call a hot wash up, trying to dis- dis- determine best practices. So those can be cascaded across the whole federal government. And and so, again, it's allowing remote telework. It's allowing no decline in information being passed through the systems to the public. And the final one is just the whole idea of continuity of gov- government and leadership because everybody's not in their location. So that's very significant for you know, possible weather issues, breaches, and other things that come up that, that require emergency response.
1: All right. Well, we're up on the break. When we come back, I'm going to continue this conversation with my guest today, Tim Cook. He's the Executive Director of the Center for Procurement Advocacy and Tom Sisti, who's General Counsel Executive Vice President at the Coalition of Government Procurement. And I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today are Tim Cook. He's Executive Director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy. Tom Sisti, who's general counsel, executive vice president for the Coalition for Government Procurement. And uh, Tom Tom and Tim, Tim and Tom, T squared, I guess. I don't know. Um, So, yeah, Tim, uh, I want to follow up. We talked a lot about operationally what the Hill's going through with regard to the pandemic and the Delta variant and the precautions they're taking and what all means just, but from a bigger picture, just what what is uh, the Congress looking at with regard to, you know, the logistical preparation, you know, uh, in anticipation of uh, future pandemics, you know, whether it's
0: stockpiling or capability and that sort of thing. What are you seeing there? So, thank you, Roger. So, in the budget resolution, in the budget instructions, and and also uh, highly discussed in the House which is going to take their whack at budget instructions next is the notion that there could be future pandemics and preparedness is very important. And so there is a focus on how to get several of the congressmen and senators have gotten together to try to do a working group and figuring out what type of other preparedness, such as the stockpile of, protective equipment and medicines and how should this be done and how much money do they need to make this happen. And so I'm monitoring that closely to see see how that pans out. And I think it's, it's agency-wide and it's going to be a big lift and they're going to need a lot of future funding. But the good news is that we're focused on it now and it's top of mind.
1: Right. Tom, like just from your perspective, kind of the lessons learned that we're seeing Rolling out from the government, whether it's, you know, certain executive orders that focus on some key industry areas and, you know, supply chain around those. I think uh, if I recall correctly, right, it was rare earth minerals, electric uh, batteries, microchips and pharmaceuticals, medical stuff. That's one executive order. And now we have the Buy America Act executive order and the implementation can you get like the mosaic here of what's going on on the supply chain side I mean, we haven't even t- touched on cyber yet directly other than you know there's going to be a big focus on that in the in the next budget well it's a you know it's the that's a great word mosaic it is a
2: mosaic because you have different executive orders that you know fit into a bigger picture and they actually influence one another. I mean, the one that's really driving things uh, of late, uh, aside from cyber and aside from um, the competition executive order, is the the executive order on um, uh, maximizing the purchase of Americans made supplies. We're calling it the Buy America uh, executive order. Um, This order directs the FAR Council um, by uh, July 25 to Consider replacing the component test that uh, applies to the Buy American Act, and they have issued a notice of proposed rulemaking. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, It establishes a Made in America office um, to, uh, among other things, review the uh, exceptions to the Buy American Act. But backing up a second, you know, the Buy American Act, I think uh, people perceive that as a uh, law that uh, prohibits something uh, Foreign goods from being purchased. It does not. It establishes component thresholds uh, beyond which, if an offeror is uh, uh, not um, uh, providing the requisite level of domestic content, then um, a delta is applied to the price evaluation. Right. To their offer and the price evaluation. Exactly. So um So, right off the bat, you can start seeing process and procedure, and I guess um, at a high level uh the challenge here is that we we're dealing with a law that was developed uh early to mid last century, okay um, to address the economics of that time, and we're dealing with it in this century you know I, did, I was talking to people yesterday about this, and I said. It reminds me of these shows I love to watch about uh, car renovation, and we take like a 1963 Ford uh, Falcon Futura, my favorite looking little car, and uh, and we put a new uh, new engine in it. We put rally wheels on the thing, uh, replace the uh, convertible uh, top. At the end of the day, it's still uh, what 70, 80 year old. You know what I'm saying? It's 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 an old car, and uh, so we have this this new system that's established pursuant to the executive order. So what does it do? It raises, as you'll see in the notice of proposed rulemaking, it raises the content thresholds. So it goes from 50 to 55%, two years later to 65%, two years later, 75% content, domestic content. Okay. Um, so people think, well, that's great. Now I'm putting aside the discussion of what, you know, how, how much this affects in the, Greater scheme of procurement. Let's just deal with the mechanics here. If you're good at math, um, you may um, be able to craft your supply chain makeup for a given product, right? Uh, to uh, to account for the delta, which is twenty percent for large uh, for large businesses, thirty for small, and and still come out with um, less domestic content and win the procurement. Okay. Um, so understanding that, that background there, you, 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 start to see the issue. You have a lot of process. Okay. Um, and you have more process because there are representations now attendant to this. Um, for instance, there, there are these elements that are, are still being worked out on critical components um, once they're defined, the vendors, will be. it will be left to them to identify the domestic content associated with critical components and other components. These are reporting uh, burdens to be sure, but you also get into uh, concerns about false statements and things like that. It's just a necessity in government contracting, especially in this context, because the CO under the proposed rule is going to assess, uh, what the vendor supplies and then identify what, um, if any price preference should take place. So, you know, it has, it's significant, but, uh, um, at a different level, taking it up again, you have to ask is, is broad sweeping policy really the way to address, um, domestic manufacturing, um, should there be something more strategic? Should we be looking at this in such a broad brush approach where we take, let's say, innovative information technology and treat it the same as ceiling fans? You know, um, do we really care as much about the latter as we do the former? Um, and, and this, again, this by America, uh, I think the, the events of the last week, you know, show that we're in an allied, interconnected world, world. Should we be thinking of things in terms of by allied I mean, especially when it could have, you know, the secondary effect of incenting allies away from certain supply chains and creating um, a, a, an environment where joint activity could be promoted by, by ally. Um, The there's There are other processes, again, in place, like delaying that that could delay acquisitions because if there are exemptions, remember there's still exemptions um, and by American exemptions for commercial items. People were worried that that's being, um, that would change. So far it has not changed. They're studying whether um, commercial items should be changed uh, as an exemption. Uh, But if to the extent that there's an exemption because of uh, no domestic manufacturer or the price is too high, um, they're going to go through the new chief of that Made in America office. And then if there's a conflict between the agency and th- that office, it'll go through a process that I believe is sort of tied to regulatory conflict with OIRA. All right. So you could see delay in acquisition. And so you, you have to say, what's going to be the impact? Uh, of, of this. The, the-
1: well, I have more, we had about a, about a minute left, Tom. So just to follow up something that you said really, you know, kind of struck me is the idea that, you know, the, the approach, you know, there you you potentially run a risk that people that are our customers could turn around and decide, well, yeah, I want to buy UK or buy France or buy EU or buy japan whatever since that's what my you know you know the essentially the leader of the western world is is doing so i i think it's good for them it's good for us so yeah i think so I, th- right. I think so because it, it it
2: it the idea of encouraging joint activity and at the same time encouraging people to move to a supply chain that isn't risk uh risk laden right uh, could be positive for everyone involved, especially given the changing
1: dynamics uh, of the world environment. Right. So in, we got to take the break now. But when we come back, we can talk some more about uh, technology modernization fund, maybe digital transformation, maybe a little bit more on supply chain. My guests today are Tim Cook. He's executive director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy. Tom Sistis, general counsel, executive vice president of Coalition for Government Procurement. I'm Roger Waldron. And you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder, and my guests today are Tim Cook, Executive Director for the Center of Procurement Advocacy, and Tom Sisti, General Counsel, Executive Vice President, Coalition for Government Procurement. And Tom, I know you had a couple uh, closing thoughts on the, Buy American, the interplay between all these different executive orders, Buy American Act, the competition one, supply chain one. Just a couple of quick thoughts, and then we move on to the Technology Modernization Fund. You know, yeah, and
2: thanks, Roger. I, I guess, you know, that's the key question is how do all these things work? We've had a flurry of these orders come out. And, and the question is, well, how are they going to work together? Um, for instance, we have, um, we have uh, the rules under this order. And again, you know, there is a question of how, how broadly this really applies. But then you have, uh, say the, the competition executive order, um, which, you know, is another one of those things where the devil's in details, um, talk about a council on competition and, uh, all focused on providing a coordinated response to concentration in the marketplace, monopoly, monopolization, uh, uh unfair competition in the economy. Well, how is that going to work, um, environment where you're you are in a sense uh, impacting competition in the marketplace because you're 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 talking about domestic content requirements. Um, Another question is you know the impact on small businesses and competitiveness to small businesses again could be affected by this and that competition executive order from a contractor standpoint is, is talking about utilizing the processes of agencies to address this concern. It has, uh, elements of, you know, the a- section 89 anti Huawei ZTE language from a couple of years ago, um, and implementing and how that will be implemented. Um, yeah. You know, so it's, these things don't operate in nice, neat, little swim lanes, you know, it's, it's like being right. in the ocean and swimming back and forth. And it, 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 it it's going to need some time to play out, um, but there are real concerns here, and you just have to see how the administration, how agencies are going to work these
1: together. Right, it, and it, it is that age-old thing, right? The executive orders set the high-level sort of policy perspective, and then it's like the the devil's in the details, and it's how it's all implemented and how it will interplay, and it's something we're definitely going to be watching very closely. All tend- in the context of statute. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep. Um, of course, I know you had mentioned statute, Tom. So, but uh, um, uh, Tim, just uh, the technology modernization fund and digital transformation, just can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, how much money was been dedicated to that and what the prospects are in the new,
0: in the Congress right now? Thank you, Roger. Um, thank you for that question. Agencies have really accomplished a tremendous amount in that they had to shift from in-person work to remote work, and they probably completed two years of modernization in two months just to make that all happen. But what they found was that more work still needs to be done, and the Technology Modernization Fund was brought about uh, several years back to try to assist with additional monies to help agencies allow themselves to modernize their systems. And um, the American Rescue Plan included $1 billion for the Technology Modernization Fund. And my understanding from talking with staff is that at least $2 billion in requests have been submitted and that they're working through those requests. I guess there's over 100 requests and at least uh, 20 of them are under serious consideration. But it just shows you the depth and the breadth of the issue and the problem and The good news is that the house appropriations bill uh, puts aside another $50 million for the technology modernization fund. But as I just said, since um, there's been over 2 billion in requests just because of the 1 billion in the American rescue plan, the appropriators uh, will definitely need to probably find more funding so that they can continue to assist the agencies. And that might be done in the budget reconciliation. So we're keeping close tabs on that and trying to also help with what agencies have learned, what best practices uh, that were passed on to industry that could be cascaded over to other agencies in case there's other pandemics or closings or cyber attacks.
1: Or even just normal operations, best practices that have developed from our current operating dynamic. Um, that just begs a question. You kind of talked about, mentioned best practices, Tim, and you know, sharing them. Do you see the possibility, I mean, as more funding is being, and this is an age-old thing, it's, you know, modernization of systems and that sort of thing, you know, and dedicating money to it. Is it, I don't get a sense, but there isn't an overarching strategy to this, right? It's it's department by department, agency by agency, trying to figure, all the CIOs in the different agencies. You know, Tom, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah. Actually, um,
2: this, this isn't limited to funding or modernization. It's, it really does cut across a bunch of issues. For instance, uh, you know, I can tell you, um, only because I, I, in my other life, uh, work with the CPA, the, there has been a, an overriding concern on the part of those members who also happen to be coalition members, um, that, we have a very, very um, overlayered layered uh, approach to our cyber issues. So one of the uh, initiatives they've been working is this idea of having somebody, Defense Science Board, uh, GAO, somebody come in and review all of the cyber compliance rules across government, where they diverge, where they overlap. And then, once identifying the divergence or the overlapping nature of these rules, um, come up with a plan to create a consistent cro- horizontal platform for cyber compliance that not only helps industry, I mean, and reduces administrative time and cost, but also helps the, uh, the program people in government and the contract people in government to understand What should apply uh, across programs? Uh, Again, all with an eye towards increasing the efficiency of the process of acquisition uh, in in, in bringing uh, innovation online as rapidly as it is developed in the marketplace. So you do have these issues uh, that that cross-cut. We've become balkanized, notwithstanding efforts for the last, my goodness, With 40 years plus of trying to uh, harmonize and bring people to a common platform in acquisition, whether it be the federal acquisition regulation or or regulations regarding uh, implementation of
1: uh, intellectual property rules
2: and things like that.
1: Yeah, that's the age old. It's been around forever. Everybody, it's a government enterprise, but everybody has their own sort of process and culture and all those things and how you try to address that across the board
2: well Um, and it's and and the issue itself is like procurement groundhog day i mean we we address it and it comes back
1: right so well we're at the end of the show gentlemen so i want to thank you for your time today i want to thank my guest today tim cook executive director for the center for procurement advocacy tom Sisty, general counsel executive vice president coalition for government procurement i'm roger Waldron. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or
2: Podcast One.